Welcome to the Redeemer Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in on our sermon series through the Book of Romans. Throughout history, this has been regarded as the greatest letter ever written. It has been used by God to change people's lives for centuries, and we have prayed that God would use it to change your life as well. In a world full of bad news, Romans is about good news, and we hope God uses this sermon to help you believe and enjoy the good news of the gospel. Thanks for listening. The scripture for today is Romans 8, 26 through 30. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Amen. 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 Glad you're here. It's great to see you. My name is Jason Hatch. I'm the lead and the teaching pastor here at Redeemer. If you're new, welcome. So glad that you're here. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Romans chapter 8, the greatest chapter of the greatest letter ever written. And uh, honestly, today, the the truth uh, that we're going to look at, I have uh, all week, I've been just kind of uh, stirring up and uh, mulling over this and just uh, have a deep, deep burden um, that you would walk out of this room with a deep belief that this this promise that God is making is in fact true, not just generically, but a deep belief that it's true for you. Um, because if you believe this truth, it has a profound way to just dramatically change your life, especially change uh, your life and how you deal with adversity and suffering and difficulty and uh, weakness, as Paul is going to say. Um, so there's a lot of parts of Scripture that are a two-way street. It's like, if you do this, then this will happen. There's a responsibility for us, and God has a responsibility. Uh, Sometimes it will say, if you do this, then uh, God will do this. If you believe, you will be saved. If you uh, operate this way, you will be blessed. If you resist the devil, he will flee from you. There's two-way streets. Uh, This is not the case uh, for what we're reading today. This is 100% a one-way road, what God has promised to do for you if you're a Christian. So a lot of times we read through, you know, the text, we preach, explain it, we expound upon it, and then we give you some type of response, like this is what you should do in response to this. There is no response for us to do today, right? The only response is for you to believe a promise that God has made, which is staggering, yet history would say that it is nonetheless incredibly true throughout history uh, and true, will be true in your life as well. Um, I believe that the Apostle Paul obviously believed this. He's the one that wrote down Romans chapter 8, verse 28. He believed that God has the ability and the power to cause all things to work together for good to those that love God. And so that changed the way he walked through his life. The reason we get to celebrate Paul and some of his courage and his faith is because when he met very difficult and dark circumstances, he believed this to be true. So he kept walking and he kept moving. 
And I believe Jesus Christ believed this was true, uh, that this promise that God works all things, even the things that we don't like, and Jesus uh, did not like the idea of the cross, pushed back against it in a prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane with his Father, and yet at the end of the day, believe the promise that all things work together for good. And uh, if you believe this, this really has the power to change your life, and especially to give you courage and to give you faith to walk forward when things in your life may not go as you had planned. Maybe they're not going according to your will and the way that you've uh, written up your life, but to walk forward knowing that God causes all things to work together for good. So if you are in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, give me a, a loud, hearty, ready. I like it. This is what God, through the Holy Spirit, through the hand of the Apostle Paul, says to us, chapter 8, verse 26, we're going to go through verse 30. It says this, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. There is a lot of promises in this one-way road about what God has promised to do. Uh, there's really not any responsibility on what we're supposed to do in this passage. So let me just unpack for a few moments some things that God has promised. Number one, God has promised right here to help us when we are weak. How many of you have ever been weak? If you're struggling to raise your hand right now, that's a moment of weakness, so go ahead and raise your hand. Like, how many of you have ever been weak? And what Paul is saying is like so weak that we're not even sure where to start or what to pray or what to say. I don't know if you have ever been so discouraged by a situation in your life, uh, so troubled by somebody that has hurt you, uh, so confused about God's path and will for your life that you didn't even know where to start, you didn't even know what to pray, you wanted to pray, maybe the desire was there, but you just had nowhere, didn't know where to start. Paul is saying that sometimes you're going to hit these moments of weakness where we don't even know what to pray, we're not even sure what God's will is, and in those moments, there's just a promise that he made us right here, that in those moments that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us and prays on our behalf the will of God to the Father. And so when you have moments that you're feeling weak and you're confused and you're not sure what to pray, there's not even an, a command to obey in this text. There's just simply a promise for you to know that sometimes God is working on your behalf. The Holy Spirit is praying for you even when you don't know it, especially when you're weak and you don't know what to pray. How many of y'all have ever heard that phrase that God helps those who helps themselves? You ever heard that? God helps those who help themselves. You just need to know this. It's not in the Bible. Uh, that is not a biblical idea. It's a more biblical idea to say, especially in light of this text, that God helps those who can't help themselves, who are weak and don't know what to do, where to go, how to start, that the Holy Spirit intercedes on your behalf. 
Um, 2020 was a difficult year for most people, I think. That's probably fair to say. It was very difficult for me. Um, I know a lot of people in this room have probably got some form of church hurt. We hear about this often, uh, that people are coming to Redeemer and they've been hurt in the past uh, by the church or by somebody in the church. And uh, I just want to let you know, like, nobody understands that better than a pastor. I don't think there's anybody that's been hurt by the church more than pastors um, because our job is to lead and to shepherd the sheep. And so 2020, I remember there were some things that um, uh, deeply hurt and confused me, and I, I felt like this moment of weakness a few times last year, this is just being honest with you, like, I, did, I didn't know what to do, I didn't know where to go, I wanted to pray, but didn't even know where to start and how to pray. And I remember God reminding me of this promise. And so I remember thinking, okay, this is a moment of weakness. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to pray. And so I, I, I told the Holy Spirit, it's like, I remember you promising me that in these moments that you're going to pray God's will for me. And so I'm going to sleep. I'm going to sleep like a Calvinist because I trust my God and I trust the Holy Spirit working on my behalf. So you just pray for me and I'm, I'm calling it a day. Head hit the pillow, trust God, sleep well, wake up. And it's an unbelievable thing to know and promise to believe that in your moments of weakness, sometimes you don't even have to do anything. The Holy Spirit takes on the initiative to pray from your soul with groanings too deep for words. The Holy Spirit will pray on your behalf, intercede between you and the Father, and pray God's will. I think it's an, an incredible thing that he just promised there. It's in verse 27 that the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And so if you have a moment of weakness and the Holy Spirit prays for you, you can, you can be guaranteed that the Holy Spirit is going to pray God's will. How many of you struggle with praying God's will versus like praying your will? Anybody? Sometimes they're different, right? Like, even Jesus struggled with this. He's like, my will is to not go to the cross. But he decided he was going to pray, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. It's an unbelievable truth for you to believe and to know that when the Holy Spirit intercedes for you, he always prays God's will. And so he, he's praying that your will and your life and your actions would be bent towards God's will. How many times do we pray and ask God's will to kind of bend towards our will and what we want? That, that never happens when the Holy Spirit prays for you. He is always praying and interceding to bend our will to the Father's will. That's the, the first promise that you need to know and to believe and to lay hold of is that God helps us when we're weak internally through what the Holy Spirit does on our behalf. The second promise it's, it's so profound and has so much ability to change your life that I want to read it again. Um, this is Romans chapter 8, verse 28. If you're looking for a life verse, this would be a fantastic one. If you're looking for a new tattoo, this would be a fantastic one. If you're looking for a mug, a t-shirt, uh, a hoodie, a beanie, any kind of paraphernalia, that's probably not the right word, uh, apparel, apparel. Don't get paraphernalia with Romans eight twenty-eight on it. Like, this is a good one because, like, if you think about the, the promises of Scripture as kind of the Rocky Mountains, the mountain range, some of the stuff we're hitting in Romans chapter 8, these are like the 14,000, these are the 14ers. And I would even say that Romans eight twenty-eight is the Mount Everest of the Rocky Mountains, even though I know 
that Mount Everest is not in the Rocky Mountains, but if you were to move it and to put it in the Rocky Mountains, it's just a monumental thing that towers over the rest. And this promise in Romans 8, 28 is true whether we like it or not. There's nothing that's contingent upon us and our actions. This is simply the God of the universe declaring what he is committed to do in your life. Are you ready for this? Somebody in the back is? So we'll go. And we know... That for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. An unbelievable promise that you need to believe. And if you do, it will change the way that you live in adversity and suffering because it keeps you in, in the frame of mind where you can move forward when things may not be going in your life as you had planned. Because if this verse is not true, we have to hit the brakes, we have to pause, we have to wonder why in the world are things happening to me that I didn't draw up in my life plan. Well, if you believe this verse, you keep walking. When, when life does not make sense in the windshield, if you believe this promise, you keep moving forward. And normally in the rearview mirror, things begin to make a little more sense. So four things as we just work through this promise. This is a promise that we have from God. Number one, he has promised all things. Everybody say all. Say it again. Say it again. That it's, it's, it's important that we understand that, that he's serious when he means all. Because oftentimes we can believe this promise kind of, you know, on a certain level, but then something happens and it's so bad or so confusing or so destructive in your life, we will think that that is like in a separate bucket. Well, yeah, God causes a lot of things to work together for good, but not this. Like this is too ugly, this is too hurtful, this is too confusing, this is too surprising. But what this is saying is there is not anything that does not fit in this category, in the bucket of all. How many things, if you love God in your life, will he work together for good? All, every single one. The most, the most hurtful ones, he will use them in some way to bring about good. The most confusing ones. All things, it's, it's important for us to know and to believe that. This doesn't mean all the pretty things or all the expected things, but truly all things. God said all things. Number two, he says, will work for good. Okay, this is different. He's not saying all things are good. True or false? There's bad things in life. False. <laughs> Not a trick question. Like, th there's bad things, and he's not saying for the Christian all things will be good. There's a difference in saying all things will be good or all things will be used to make good. You know, if you imagine somebody's got some uh, expensive pieces of glass and some accident happens and the three-year-old runs through and breaks all of them, like, that's not a good thing. But if an, an artisan or some type of uh, creative person comes in, can pick up all these little pieces and something that happened that was bad and fashion them together in some type of a beautiful uh, mosaic of stained glass, that, that's the picture. It's like, yeah, the stained glass is beautiful. It was made out of things that maybe were not good. This is not saying that all things are good. This is saying God has promised, and the Bible tells us that God cannot lie. He will keep this promise. All things will be working together for good. And so the real looming question is, who, for who? 
And we've talked about this before, and it's especially important in Romans chapter 8 because Paul has a tendency to have some run-on sentences, right? It's important that you get to the period. Um, so if we just stop, I think a lot of people try to apply this to their lives. I mean, people from uh, people that are atheists or people that are agnostics or follow other religions, they'll try to, I've heard this, try to take this and say, listen, this is incredible news. All things work together for good. It's like, well, keep going because that promise is a very specific promise. Who has God promised to work all things together for good? He says to those who love God, which, which in, in its purest sense, it means to those who have committed their life to following God and to living for God. And I agree with uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Um, he was preaching on this text and writing about this text, and he believed there was a very specific reason that in this text God did not say all things work together for good to those that believe in God. He, he's, he's much more precise, and that's an important precision for the Bible Belt. Because I think if you ask the question, like, are you a Christian, you get an answer of like, oh, yeah, everybody in West Texas is a Christian, right? But then you start defining it in different ways, um, then that category tends to get smaller. So if you say you're a Christian, you have all these people that might respond, yes, I'm a Christian. And if you say, do you believe in God? We still have a lot of people that would say, oh, yeah, I believe in God. I believe he's out there. I believe Jesus was a historical man. But, but that's not how Paul chooses to qualify this. He says, for those who love God. And, and, and so this is a, a fantastic diagnostic question for you, is do you love God? Because that's a, that's a little bit diff, diff, more difficult question to answer. Right? It's very different than just are you a Christian, are you a moral person? The, the question is, do with your heart and your affections and your soul, do you love God? Do you love God? Do you have any affections for God? Because I know a lot of people that would put themselves in the category of Christian moral person, but like love for God is not top of their priority list. And so Paul says, this is who this promise is reserved for, those who love God. And the Bible would go so far as to say that's the purpose that every human was created for. The highest purpose that we have as humans that we're trying to attain is to love God. Do you remember the story that people were pushing on Jesus and asking him some questions. They said, what's the most important commandment? We know there's like the top ten list that uh, we were given by Moses, and we know now we've got a lot more than that. But Jesus, if you were to boil down the one greatest command, what is the purpose that human beings were created for? He would say the greatest command is this, to love the Lord your God. So that, that's my just very simple question for you. Not, not are you moral, but do you love, do you have an affection for God? Because that's the people that God has made this promise to. He's made a promise that will work all things together for good for those who love God, and then number four, who are called according to whose purposes? His purpose. That if you're a Christian, you've been called, and you've been called as a tool to serve the purposes of God. Uh, I was doing some work at my house these last two days, and uh, from my neighbor, I borrowed this gasoline-powered auger, right? So it's a, a post hole digger that uh, just serves very one simple function. It digs a hole, right? You start this thing up, you crank it up, and, and, it, and it digs a hole. It is a tool that exists to serve a purpose. I think a lot of times we don't maybe necessarily like to think of ourselves uh, in that way, but in, in a certain way we are. Uh, we have been created for a certain purpose that we're tools 
Maybe that, you've been called a tool before. Maybe that's not what they were talking about. Uh, we're tools that exist for the purposes of God. And so God has brought us in, and he's given us a purpose for the will of God that he will cause all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So again, this is good to keep in mind because things may not always go according to our purpose, and we definitely may not understand God's purpose. I mean, Isaiah was the one that said, God's ways are higher than our ways. I don't understand a lot of the things God does, and I don't understand all of the time his will, but you have a promise that your life, all of those things that happen in your life will work together for good according to his purpose. That's the promise that we have in chapter 8, verse 28. And then Paul just begins this really uh, beautiful, poetic, powerful description of what God has done and is doing with all Christians. A lot of people call this the unbreakable chain where he just goes in kind of this sequence of events of God has done this and he's done this and he's done this and he's done this and he's done this. And again, when, I, when we read through this again, there's, we haven't contributed anything yet. This is just simply declaring what God has done for believers. Okay, let's, uh, let's read it again, and I'll tell you why I want to read this again, because I want you to just see in the Bible uh, the concepts, the theology, and the words that we're going to use. Verse 29 says this, For those he foreknew, everybody say foreknew. He also predestined, everybody say predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined. Say it again. He also called. Everybody say called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Say justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Say glorified. These are important words. These are important terms. We have not done anything in those two verses. This is a declaration of the actions of God, what God has done. Now, before we tease this unbreakable chain out, um, and I want you to think about it not in terms of a funnel. It's not like he, uh, he foreknew a lot of people, and then a lot of those, you know, 90% of them he was effective, and he uh, set their destiny, and then, you know, 90% of those he was effective, and he called them, and then he justified, and then he glorified. What, the, the language that Paul is using is saying 100% from start to finish is what God has done. Every single person that he foreknew, he predestined, he justified, he, he glorified. And so this is the progression that God is accomplishing for Christians. The only thing that we're called to do in this text is to believe it and then just respond in worship because God is a good God. And now, I feel like we need to set some ground rules before we jump into this. B because these are some words that have become uh, somewhat divisive uh, in, in, in churches and maybe confusing and even sometimes avoided. You know, I know some pastors that won't even use certain words that are written in the Bible because they have become so divisive. And so here's the ground rules that I want to set because he's... he's He's starting this march, and this march is going to go through chapter 9, through chapter 10, through chapter 11. He's going to say some things. And so this is my plea for you as your pastor, right? And it's a very simple plea, is for us to let God's Word create our theology. You all with me? A lot of people, they're like, I don't like that. I, 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 was, I was with Jesus and with Paul right up until he said that, but I disagree. I just, it doesn't seem logical. I don't think that's how it works. 
And um, it's, it, that's like bringing your theology to the Bible and then, you know, tweaking the Bible because obviously Paul and Jesus and God, they missed a few things, right? So th- there's obviously some great danger in that. If we believe 90% of the Bible and tweak a couple of the little things that we don't understand or we don't like or we were taught not to like, then what you get is your own religion, <laughs> Like, where where you're God and you've kind of decided what goes and what doesn't go, what's right and what's wrong. And can we just agree, we don't make good gods. Anybody, can my wife say an amen for that for me? So, like, especially these topics that we're talking about and these incredible and important words that are in the Bible, it's important for us to come into this with an open mind and an open heart and let the Bible give us our theology. Everybody agree with that? Okay. Okay. Number one, this is the word. It says, he foreknew. He foreknew, which if you actually look at it in the Greek, what does it mean? It means foreknew, <laughs> right? It's, sometimes people, they just kind of like, oh, well, that's not really what it means. Well, I think God means what he says, and he says what he means. So he says foreknew, which very literally means knew beforehand. And so he, and, and it can honestly, in, in a couple places, be, be translated as almost as foreloved. He had set his affection on beforehand. That's the first step. That in God's mind and God's heart, he foreknew. He loved some people and set his affection on, uh, on, on a certain people. Um, this is what Peter, so we, we know Paul teaches this, and it's all throughout his letters. This is what the apostle Peter has to say about this in relation to Jesus. Okay, this is Acts chapter 2. Verse 23, this Jesus, and he's, he's preaching after, I mean, weeks after the crucifixion and the resurrection, it's Pentecost, uh, Jews from all over the Roman Empire were in Jerusalem, and he's preaching the gospel, the church is born, it's an unbelievable moment, but he's explaining Jesus, who, can we agree what just happened to Jesus didn't seem fair, it sure didn't seem out of the windshield as something that was good, uh, he was betrayed by one of his best friends, abandoned by the rest of him, and then beaten to death publicly as, a, as, a, as, a, as the worst of criminals. And yet this is what Peter says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. Why was Jesus crucified? The, because God planned it. And so there, if, if God in his mind said, you know what, I'm going to send my son, he's going to be born, he's going to live, he's going to die on a cross, then nobody gets to change that because God has decided it's going to happen. So Satan comes in and he tries to derail this whole thing. He knows who Jesus is. And so he, you know, he gets in the, the heart and the mind of some of these leaders like, you know what, we're going to mess up God's plans. And so we're going to murder all of the young boys that are, that, are, that are young boys in the whole area. And we're going to snuff out this Messiah that did not work. Because if God designed something and he foreknew it and he made a definite plan, then it's going to happen. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. First Peter chapter 1 verses 1 through 2. This is Paul writing to a local church. So this is, I mean, there, there, there's a lot of words. We've talked about them uh, quite a bit that describe Christians. And we often in our culture use the word Christian. That is probably the least used in the New Testament. Oftentimes we're called saints. Oftentimes we're called those who are in Christ. Um, but one of Peter's favorite phrases is to call Christians the elect or the chosen. And this is what he says in 1 Peter 1, 1 through 2. He says, for those who are elect exiles, and it means chosen, it means in the foreknowledge of God that they were were chosen, 
Those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So I know sometimes there's a temptation to just kind of pull some of these words out, yet they're very clearly in the Bible, and this is saying the heart of God, that he foreknew a certain people. And then the second word, that's the first in this unbreakable chain, God foreknew, and those who he foreknew, he predestined. Everybody say predestined again. I was in a meeting years ago at a church that I was a part of, and this meeting was to uh, install and, uh, and ordain some new deacons, some new leaders in the church. Uh, and one of the uh, older deacons in the church was in this meeting, was sitting at the table, and he asked this, uh, this young man that was uh, in the, the hot seat, so to speak, he said, what do you think about predestination? Do you believe in predestination? And then obviously there was a pause, because <laughs> you're like, this feels like a trap. And then he said, because I don't, and, and I remember thinking, like, that's a pretty bold statement to just say that you don't believe something that is a word that's in Scripture. And, and so we need to let the Bible create our theology, and so I think you're on dangerous ground when you have to start getting an exacto knife and cutting pages out of your Bible. This says that for those he foreknew, he predestined. So what does that mean? And if you look at the actual word in Greek, do you know what it means? Predestined. A destiny that was set beforehand. So this means that God, he, he foreknew, and those he foreknew, he predestined, which means he decided their ultimate destiny beforehand. This is Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. The apostle Paul is, is speaking to a church. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Why should, why should we bless God the Father, who has blessed us. We're recipients. This isn't anything that we have contributed. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us. Oh, Paul, you're saying that God is the one that chose us? When did he do that? Was it the moment I believed? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world was ever laid that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And we unpacked a couple weeks ago what Paul talks about the implications of adoption on a cosmic scale, that we've been adopted into the family. So the question is, how did we get adopted? And the answer is, because God has done something in us, to us, through us. He has set our destiny here it says that we should be adopted and holy and blameless, which means that those who belong to Jesus, he has already set your destiny in place. That He will not stop until he is done working in you what he has planned from the beginning, which is what? I'm glad you asked. Verse 29, he is predestined that we should be conformed to the image of Christ. Which means everyone he foreknew, he predestined. And every single one of those he predestined, he is going to conform to the image of Jesus. Which means he is not going to be done with us until we look like Jesus. How many of you are excited about that? How many of you are like, I got a long ways to go. God's got his work cut out for him. And yet the promise is that he will not finish until all those that belong to him look like Jesus. And just so you know, like that's one of the, the benefits and one of the blessings and one of the beauties of heaven. You know, it's not, it's obviously the biggest blessing of heaven is, is Jesus, 
But the second thing is not that we get to fly, right? I'm just, I hate to burst your bubble, but we don't get to fly. Um, You know, I hear people all the time say, well, so-and-so passed on, and they got their wings, and they became an angel. You don't get wings. I know that's upsetting to some of us. But what's beautiful about heaven is not that we get to fly or we're angels, but everyone there looks and acts like Jesus. How many of y'all would love for your community group? It would be so easy if your community group was full of Jesus. Yeah? True story. That's what heaven is. It's Jesus and then everybody else that has been conformed into the image of Jesus. And aren't you glad that God is more committed to this process than you are? Like, you're, sometimes you're committed to looking like Jesus, but let's be honest. Sometimes you're not. Agreed? God doesn't waver back and forth. He's just committed, and he says, he who began a good work in you will see it through until the day of completion. He's not going to give up until he's done working off all the rough edges and conforming you to the image of Christ, which really means the character of Christ. So maybe we're not physically going to look like him, but we will have the character of Jesus when God is finished with us. Some of us, maybe we started out January just awesome. You know, we were committed to the new us, and then a week later, somebody delivered donuts to the office, right? It's like we make these uh, things where we're promising to, to do better with ourselves, and then we, we, we don't even keep up with that a lot of the times. God is absolutely committed to forming you into the image of Jesus Christ. That's what heaven is. The, the sin has been removed. The curse is gone. We have been shaved and shaped and molded into the image of Jesus. And that is sometimes a difficult and a painful process. If you think about the process that gold goes through to become refined, it's intense heat, scrape away the dross, and through that process, you get this pure gold. If you take a diamond that's uh, rough cut in the, in, in, in the rough, and, and you take this thing and you cut off all the edges and you sand it, and this, this sounds like a difficult process, but you get this beautiful diamond. We're in this process of sanctification that God has promised to complete. And I I can't wait for the day when the struggle is over, the work is complete, we've been conformed into the image of Jesus. For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the image of Christ. And then it says those he called. Everybody say called. Which... It's very surface. It means what it says. It means that we've been given a call to respond to. Do you know how the 12 disciples became disciples? None of them volunteered. They weren't on the boat saying, hey, Jesus, you need some help? We're in. We'll be, we want, we, we're tired of these fishy fish. We want to fish for men. Like they, he, he called them. He just said, hey, you, you're, you're on my team now. Come on. He, he called the disciples. And do you know how every Christian became a Christian? We were called. It says, for those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, and those he called. And Jesus said it this way, and I mean, it's John chapter 6. He said, no one can come to God unless the, the, the Father who sent me draws him. That, that's this drawing, this calling. And so I think the question that pops up oftentimes is, I thought I decided to follow Jesus. I mean, I sang the song, I have decided, right? So which one is true? Did you decide to follow Jesus or did Jesus call you? And I think in a way they're, they're both true. And this is what, in, and especially in the context that we are in, in our country, in our political state, th- this is the challenge. And I'm going to bring this idea up multiple times in the next few weeks. There are some things in the Bible that seem incongruent. Like did God choose us or did we choose him? It seems like it has to be one or the other. 
And, and I think we've been trained and taught as Americans that we have to pick sides when, when we, we don't have to pick sides. You know, we, we can believe certain things in one platform and certain things in another platform, and we're forced to be like, no, 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 those are mutually exclusive. You have to pick one. And so a lot of times when you say, well, I don't know, you either, either you chose God or God chose you, I agree with Spurgeon, and he was talking about this idea. He's like, did, did, did God choose us or did we choose him? He says, there are two parallel lines that meet somewhere in eternity. So when the Bible says something, this is just my encouragement, to believe it. What if you don't understand it? That's okay. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. We hold the theology. So when I preach, what do I do? I invite people to respond, and I say, hey, choose Jesus. That's a good choice. But I know only those who are called by God will choose. He says those who are called. How many of those who are called? Then he says all of those who are called are, well, let me, let me read Ephesians 4 before I jump ahead. Paul talking to a church, a group of Christians, Ephesians 4, 1, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Meaning God called you to be a Christian, so now that your identity is a Christian, your activity needs to, to try to catch up. Live your calling out. You have been called, now go live as though you were called. And those he called, he justified. Everybody say justified. A little more gusto. Justified. This has been like a predominant theme thus far in the book of Romans. The idea that Christians in Christ have been justified, have been pronounced and treated as innocent and blameless because what the Reformers called the great exchange. Jesus lived a perfect life. We did not. He traded. He gave us his righteousness, took our sin on the cross so that we might be justified. Is God frustrated with you? No, you've been, you're treated as though you were Jesus because he gave you his righteousness. He gave you his resume. He imputed his righteousness to you. And all of those he justified, he glorified, which means exalted or lifted up, that we have been raised in the heavenly, seated with Christ, that this action of being justified, you can go back and look and see for yourself, everything that has just happened is what God has done. None of it describes what we have done. God, in his foreknowledge, has predestined, has called, has justified, and has glorified. i got a few minutes, and I want to I close with this idea because I, I understand that we can have that theology, and it works, and it's simple, and it's, it's effective here in this room, but then oftentimes when you, you meet life or some situation that you don't like and, and it's difficult, and maybe it was was unplanned for, then there's a tendency to just kind of pause. And I know when those moments hit, it's a lot tougher to believe this. And yet, if you look out throughout all of history, God has proven himself to be true to this promise. And so it gives us enough faith to see his faithfulness throughout the generations to continue to move forward. Because a lot of times when stuff hits you from the, through the windshield, you're tempted to stop. But if you have faith and you trust this promise is true, you keep going, and then a lot of times you see in the rearview mirror just exactly what God was doing. Joseph, if you've read anything about Joseph's story in uh, the book of Genesis early on, he was just kind of cruising through life. Everything was great out the windshield until all of a sudden his brothers sold him out, like literally threw him in a pit lied to their dad that he was killed, sold him into slavery, and he was taken into the worst place that you could be a slave, in Egypt. 
And he could have just stopped. Like the windshield, things did not look good. But he trusted God that his promise was true, and he kept going. And in Joseph's rearview mirror, what do you see? You see that God works all things for good, for his good, good of his people and his plan. And all of a sudden, Joseph is not just a slave, but he's number two in command under Pharaoh. And there's a huge famine. And Joseph is the reason the entire nation of Israel was saved in this famine. And their God was renowned as the one true God. Why? Because God works all things. But oftentimes, you don't see that until it's in the rearview mirror. So you have to keep going. What about David? If you read a lot about David, he was really excited about life, had a good prospect because somebody had just said he was anointed to be the next king of Israel. And then out the windshield, all of a sudden, Saul's throwing spears at him. Uh, He's running for his life, living in caves. A lot of people are out to get him, and and yet he endures. And you read through Psalms. He was convinced that God is still good. And in the rearview mirror of David's life, you see, man, God was turning the nation's heart back to him through this king-sized heart that David had. He was a man after God's own heart, and you see he endured this because he believed this promise, and only in the rearview mirror do you understand what God was actually doing. What about Esther? Through her windshield, she was snatched from her family, didn't like that, was thrust into a position that she didn't like nor want, was serving under this power-hungry king, and she just kept trusting God, kept moving forward, and why did those bad things happen? to put her in a place where she would plead for her people, and this woman was responsible for the safety of the entire nation through the rearview mirror. What about Paul? We know the story of Paul and all the stuff that he endured, beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, and then eventually, out his windshield, he would be arrested, shipped up to Rome, left there for years under house arrest, and if he, he could have just sat in his cell and thrown a pity party and be like, hey, man, God, I guess God forgot Romans 8, 28. I don't even know if he'd written it yet. But he didn't. Why? Because he trusted God's promise, and so he kept moving forward. And we see out his rearview mirror, what was God doing? God gave him a front row seat to share the gospel with Caesar's household, and the gospel would infiltrate the Roman Empire. Because God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. What's his purpose? To get the gospel to the nations. Paul was a tool serving that purpose. What about Jesus? We've talked about this multiple times. He gets to his moment of agony in the garden. He knows he's about to be crucified, and he's, like, he's praying. He's like, ah, God, please, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. Because out the windshield, he knows that there's some difficulty ahead. And yet he knows that God works all things. And he precisely knew how the cross would work. And so he marches through. And in our rear view mirror, we see that he was dying to save. Uh, In my life, if I look back on different situations and and difficulties that I've walked through, and I've been tempted to think, is this true? I don't have a T-shirt that says Romans 8.20, but is it really true? In those moments, I've really come to find out that sometimes the most dark and difficult seasons, they almost always produce the best things. Uh, I was graduating from high school, and I was dating this girl, and uh, I was pretty serious, and uh, I graduated from high school. She was a year younger than me, and uh, I'm the youngest of all my siblings, and my parents moved to Colorado, and uh, I thought, oh, gosh, I don't want to move to Colorado, um, but then my grandfather was having a heart-to-heart with me, and he said, you know what, Jason, uh, just remember this, absence makes the heart grow fonder. 
And he goes, but, but they also say out of sight, out of mind. So I'm not sure which one it is. So anyways, I moved to Colorado, moved back to Amarillo, and then she dumps me. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, my world is going to end. No lie. I bought a Yamaha guitar. I bought Guitar for Dummies because I wanted to, like, learn to sing the blues. And I was writing songs about, oh, woe is me. My life is over. You know, and nothing is going to work out. And because of that, because I bought this guitar, and I started learning how to play. I was invited to lead worship for this youth group, and I showed up at this camp, and the speaker was, got sick or something, and I, got, I just kind of, kind of thrust into this idea as a college student, and they had multiple people say, hey, you're like an effective teacher. And through that, God called me to ministry, completely changed my course, told me to be a pastor, moved to Dallas, and I found Hannah, who is much better. It's like, you know, it sounds silly. You're like, man, you must have lived a very charmed life if, you know, a breakup was the most difficult thing. It was a difficult thing for me, one of the most difficult things. And I look back, that is the most pivotal moment that has changed the trajectory of my life. Um, I don't have time to get into all this, but I had a closed door years ago in ministry that just caught me off guard. And I was like, oh, man, I had so many hopes and dreams and thoughts about how this would work out. And this just seems like God doesn't care. And then through that deep, dark, difficult season of life, I get a phone call from Dusty Thompson Lubbock saying, hey, you should come plant a church in Midland. And here I am in Midland. I could not dream. Some of y'all, you need to hear this. I could not dream of a better place than Midland. I love Midland. I'm committed to Midland. You should be too. If you're one of those that's here, you're like, we're just here for one or two years and we're going to get out. Don't. Stay. We need you. We're making disciples. Like out of this difficult season, I could not have dreamed what God had planned for us to do. Don't have time, but I'll take it anyway. Uh, my mother, some of y'all have heard this story. Hannah and I were on our one-year anniversary with my mom and dad. And uh, this was uh, a week before I started my ministry as a pastor in, uh, in Dallas. And, uh, and the week before I started, I started June 1st. This was uh, May 22nd of um, 2008. Uh, my mother drowned on our trip. And, uh, I mean, that was a dark, deep, difficult, devastating season. And I remember preaching the next week, the first time I'd ever preached, I was preaching Romans 8, 28. God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Well, surely not this. This, one's, this is too much. And I don't have time to tell you what God has done because he took my mother home. It completely changed my, my heart in preaching. I preached differently and thought about the gospel differently. It wasn't just head. It was connected with my heart. My, it was shook my dad out of some of his, um, what he would say, just kind of the, the Bible Belt lull where he realized that he had wasted a lot of his life, changed his life. He became a, became a missionary, built a prosthetic clinic for refugees in Burma. A whole people group were affected by the gospel because of what happened. He wound up in Canada, is working with the reservation. It just, it, 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 there are so many ripple effects. Was that a good thing? No, absolutely not. It was not a good thing. Did it work for good? Absolutely, according to God's plan. He works all things together for good. But you only get to see that if you don't stop. If you don't stop, then over time, sometimes in this life, always in heaven, you will see what God was doing. If you're faithful and you continue to walk in your rearview mirror, over time you will begin to see what God is doing with the difficult things in your life. But don't give up. Don't quit. Believe this promise is true. And so here's my encouragement for you by way of application. There's nothing in here for you to do other than love God. 
you love God and you let him take care of everything else. You love God and you let him orchestrate all the things. You love God and you keep loving God and you keep marching forward and you leave everything else up to him because that's what he has promised to do. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. I'm in awe of your ability to work things out in such a cobweb of people's stories and lives and circumstances throughout all of history. And yet we look back and we see even the darkest times in history and and God, even the darkest times and seasons in our lives, you were the most at work, not the least at work. You were the most at work behind the scenes, causing things to bring you glory, to push your agenda and your plan forward on the earth. And so, Father, I just pray, I pray right now that you would give us the faith to believe that this promise is, in fact, true. And help, help us, God, please give us the faith to believe that you are, in fact, powerful enough and capable enough to cause all things to work together for good to those that love you. Father, if anyone in this room does not love you with all of their heart, I pray that you would call them, that you would woo them, that you would speak into their heart and tell them what Jesus has done and the deep love that you have for them. The Apostle John is clear when he says that we love you because you first loved us. So God, I, I just want, want to invite you to call some people. Father, if they feel that tug in, in their heart, I pray that they would know that that's you wooing them and that's you calling them and that's you adopting them. And Jesus, we are so grateful that you are more committed to the final version of ourselves than we are. So thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you that in our weakness, that you intercede on our behalf when we are weak, you are strong, and your spirit prays for us. I thank you that you have adopted us, you have chosen us, you have justified us, you have glorified us. We are simply the recipients of an incredible salvation in Christ. God, I pray that would put us in an unprecedented place of humility, that we have done nothing, yet we have been given everything. God, in that humility and that thankfulness for grace would drive us to an unmerited level of obedience just simply out of gratitude and love. I pray that you're honored and worshiped and that you enjoy the next few moments and the things that come from our mouths and the things that come from our hearts. Would you be pleased and blessed by them? I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today on this podcast. We would love for you to join us at one of our in-person services as well. For more information or to support our ministry, please visit RedeemerMidland.org.